Hello, it's Lou Rosenfeld, and you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review Podcast. And uh, I'm very excited. I'm in a new venue. We moved our office very recently from Brooklyn, New York, to um, a place called Manhattan. This is the first time we've done a podcast there. I hope the sound quality is, is good enough. We're still working out some kinks. But uh, uh, as always, if you have any feedback for me, uh, you can pop me an email, Lou, L-O-U, at rosenfeldmedia.com. More importantly, we have a guest today, Matt Dwignan. Matt, you know, I didn't even ask you how to pronounce it. <laughs> now, now I'm totally embarrassed. How do, I, how do you well, we pre- in New Zealand, we pronounce it Dignan. It's an Irish name, but if there are any Irish listeners, they'll probably be surprised because I think that is not the traditional Irish pronunciation. So Dignan. That's right. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I, I looked at it and I thought it might be French for a moment. Uh, and I was going to really, really uh, butcher it, but uh, let's, I'm glad we didn't go down that path. Well, nonetheless, Matt Dignan, it's great to have you. Uh, Matt is a product manager for the Human Insight System, also known as HITS, which is a system at Microsoft that's been used and built over a number of years uh, to manage uh, research insights. And that's what we're going to talk about primarily today. Uh, I learned about HITS uh, from one of your colleagues, Matt, who was attending the Design Ops Summit in, uh, that we put on here in New York uh, last November. And um, I've been on this uh, journey of sorts for about mm, close to a decade now, uh, looking for not only an honest man, but an honest system for managing research. And I, I've, I, I keep coming up um, uh, on this feeling that doing user research is great, but it's only um, a, a small step in a bigger journey toward um, understanding the truth, the truth about users, the truth about customers that we get when we actually can put all kinds of different evidence that we're gathering through things like user research, customer research, uh, analytics, and so forth in a repository and uh, start understanding uh, the patterns in that information and that evidence that starts to to, um, appear when you can actually look at it all through the lens of one repository. So taking those blind men, getting their perspectives together and uh, helping them see the elephant. Uh, So that's what I've been really interested in, and uh, uh, I've been looking at systems like uh, Aurelius and Hanrail, and I see that there's similar repositories coming out of other uh, research tribes that are out there. What about HITS? What's so different? What's special? What, what's the journey there? How, how did you even get started on developing HITS? Yeah, well, so, so HITS... Um you know, like a lot of these um, types of systems is a web-based platform. And one of the things we're looking at is this user experience research, of course, there's the insights there. Uh, But we're also really interested in capturing um, market, market insights, uh, market research insights, um, data science insights, um, and really this cross-disciplinary database of what are the things that we know across across the entire uh, company in our case. And part of our motivations there um, the first one is that we wanted to democratize insight. 
And, you know, what that means is that there's all, you know, researchers, of course, know a lot. Um, but what about all the PMs and designers? How do we really democratize access to the things that researchers know? Um, how do we up-level and upskill um, designers and, and PMs uh, so that the sort of level of UX literacy really um, rises? And that was my, personally one of my motivations for coming to Microsoft uh, 10 years ago now. Um, and then the second one is this notion of timeless research. And um, you can actually read, um, and with, uh, a research manager posted an article on this uh, on Medium that got a lot of attention. Uh, it was worth checking out. And that's the notion of like, of course, you're doing this incredibly relevant work to your product, your immediate product team in the, the immediate moment. But what are those more timeless things that really need to transcend this one moment and need to be um, reusable in the future or in other products? Um, and, you know, if you're a research manager or even a researcher in any kind of context for long enough, you start to feel like, man, there are things that we just should know uh, or we did know that, that would be relevant to this moment that aren't available to me. Um, and then the third thing, and I think this is what uh, differentiates um, hits in some ways to some other systems, is we're trying to integrate it uh, with that tactical work that researchers are doing day in, day out, impacting our product teams. And how can we try and create a, a natural uh, progression from, say, the report or a presentation you create that has a set of you know, findings um, from one moment? And how do we connect that seamlessly to this broader, more timeless um, knowledge? And then how do we make it uh, democratized? Um, and just like a brief uh, story there to bring that to life. If you think about the number of consumer electronic products that Microsoft has from um, you know, the Xbox or uh, HoloLens or, you know, various other um, devices over time and all of the versions of those products. Um, imagine all of the out-of-box experiences that our customers have had. Imagine all of the telemetry we've collected on those experiences. Um, and then more kind of close to home for me, imagine the, the literally hundreds of um, usability studies or various user experience studies we've done watching the out-of-box experience of those products. And of course, in those moments, we've made those products better in meaningful ways. But what have we learned more broadly about that process that could, we could help us leapfrog in the next time we build a product and the next time we're building um, an out-of-box uh, out experience for a, a brand new product? Um, and what we find is there are these timeless, these durable insights that track across. And our inability to either find them or really um, speak to the evidence behind them is what um, inhibits us from, from sort of reusing what we uh, had already known. So, you know, so obviously you, you folks selected a word, insights, to focus on the name of the product. And, you know, that I imagine uh, was a pretty important thing for you because we've already um, gotten to a point with user research that there's so much baggage in our terminology. And, and one of the three areas he talked about was uh, making a connection between, say, reports and the, and the broader, more timeless uh, evidence that you have in, in a system like HITS. Are you finding that you're having to reinvent your language a lot? Like, do you, like does it help you to not use the term reports? There's a certain tyranny of, in reporting that... Uh, I think anyone who's done any kind of uh, ongoing research would, would identify with. Are, are you finding that you have to use a whole new language to describe whatever it is, insight development or, or evidence uh, accumulation or whatever it might be? 
yeah, it's fascinating because from, you know, anyone who's building products knows how important the language we use is to help the customer or the user of that product to develop a mental model to understand, you know, that user model versus system model uh, question, like how, what is the shortcut into using the system where I'm not sort of inventing these brand new terms. And, you know, you've really hit the nail on the head because that is such a precious and difficult challenge to figure out what are the words we use. Where do we have like net new concepts and what words do we give them? Um, and if there are layers to the system, which, you know, there are in hits in terms of observational um, knowledge versus more higher level insights, what labels and language do we use for those terms? And, um, you know, speaking from experience, when we change and experiment with those labels, we may have um, terms uh, that perform quite well from a pure usability standpoint, from our standpoint, and they express like divisions that we think are important. But when researchers are using the system and their work has those labels applied, they, they have quite reasonable emotional reactions to, hey, I'm presenting this and, and now this label is assigned to this, this sort of concept that I'm trying to share. Um, and that, you know, that is a, a really interesting um, and challenging experience problem to unpack. Um, and then the second thing that makes it even harder is in an organization like Microsoft, you have these very distinct research cultures between the different groups. And that's doubly so if you're trying to create a language that works for user experience research, and then you want the same language to work for data science. And what user research might say as an insight uh, and qualifies as, as something insightful, maybe quite different from uh, someone in a different group. Um, and so I had sort of toyed with the idea of almost like localization of the products where you could like have all the language switch. Um, not that we've pursued that seriously, but it almost feels like um, something like that is, is necessary. Well, so, you know, and I think you hit the nail on the head because I was wondering how the language might be important as you uh, try to create a product that is, is meeting the needs of researchers from all types of silos and, and tribes. But I guess it would be interesting to know a little bit more about the history of the development. In other words, did HITS emerge uh, from one of those silos at Microsoft? And then did you have to kind of, to some degree, reverse engineer things like the language in order to make it appealing to other silos? Or was it conceived from the very start as a uh, cross-functional research repository? I think we always had the goal that it, it could uh, serve this broader Microsoft-wide um, opportunity. And, you know, it's, it's indeed beginning to really do that as it expands. Um, but really the um, genesis of it was in the operating systems group where many different research teams came together and were organized together with a mandate from management to scale knowledge. Um, and that was just incre firstly incredibly challenging and daunting, uh, but also empowering because it gave us that chance to pull our heads up uh, in some part and think about these broader themes and how we would attack them. And so our, our sort of mission one was trying to solve for um, that environment. Um, but, you know, that was a team of, a, you know, over 100 or approaching 100 researchers. And then, you know, as other reorgs occurred, we actually got larger and larger. Um, one thing that we did kind of early on was we established what we call the research language. And that was independent of HITS. It was actually what is the part of this mission of scaling insight what as a research culture do we want to develop what are the words that we want to use and the language that was in the early versions of hits um, has a sort of direct connection from that um, you know we had basic 
back to the scientific method, a real um, structure around, you know, what is the research question you're asking? What is the method? What are the, um, the insights that are derived from it? Um, and we have had to make some pretty um, sizable changes as we need to get more flexible because that early version, you know, as you are alluding to, in, in one culture, you can sort of establish norms for reporting that um, are agreed upon in that culture or, and also optimized for that culture. But we've made changes um, even sort of more broadly and structurally around how reports are organized. Um, are they organized by research question or are we more open to other types of structural headings and, and, and things in the content? Um, yeah. yeah, I'd like to dig a little bit more deeply into that because so, you know, I'm really enjoying this description of the, the sort of genesis and, and you make an important point that there already was to some degree a culture and, and structure that was cross-functional, cross-silo, around research. And so in a way, you know, HITS was growing out of that, that environment. But then, you know, what I think we see with these types of tools is that they then impact those environments in some really, you know, uh, powerful ways. So in other organizations, for example, uh, a repository can be the first thing in terms of bringing together cross-functional researchers or cross-silo researchers and, and the culture grows around the repository. In your case, it was more the reverse, but I got to imagine regardless of whether, you know, which comes first, the chicken or the repository, um, are, you know, you're, you're finding that the repository is impacting how you guys uh, work as, a, as an organization across silos. Yeah, it's interesting because there's, there's the the practical side of that, but there's also the cultural side of it. So one impact is, you know, how the tool works and how things are labeled, but there's a bigger tension point around culture because to really get, you know, back to the, the goals of democratization and timelessness and the balancing with the tactical that I, I sort of opened with, um, the none of this really... I don't want to overstate this, but it's, it's hard to get the system really working if there isn't a cultural commitment to, to what we call curation. And curation is that concept whereby I'm not just writing and authoring stuff for my immediate context, but someone um, and some of us are um, incentivized and interested in this more curation activity. And there's a lot of, um, I'm seeing a lot of sort of talk around this curation as sort of a next next wave. Now it's it's like obviously a type of synthesis, but it's potentially a synthesis that's that's less optimized for the the now and the team right in front of me, and it's more thinking about uh, this you know democratization and and timelessness. Um, and what that is sort of one of the challenges we have when we go to other teams who their content would be hugely beneficial in building the sort of broader knowledge sharing system, but you know, different teams have different commitments or investments in that other type of curation activity. And that's both that across organizations, but even on an individual basis, some researchers are incredibly, um, you know, quite rightly incentivized to drive and make immediate product decisions and really move their, you know, their stakeholders and their team and product forward for the betterment of sort of the immediate customers and, and users they have. Um, but this, this broader 
goal of like authoring more durable, more timeless knowledge and, and synthesizing and bringing it together um, is kind of what the original mandate of our tool and our organization was. But, but as you're trying to expand, others don't necessarily have that mandate. I think broadly researchers agree that they want that, but it's about sort of prioritization. And then if you know anything about behavioral economics, of course, the worst, um, the worst thing to try and do is to try and get someone to, or the hardest thing to do is to get someone to do something for other people at a deferred point in time. Mm -hmm. People tend to optimize um, for what's beneficial for themselves in the short term. Um, uh, people even poor at sort of optimizing for their own long-term uh, benefit. Um, and it, it's not that people don't want to sort of pass their knowledge on to other people, but it's just when they're trying to make day-to-day -day decisions that it's, it's really hard. Um, so that's kind of what I point to is this broader cultural piece um, that the technical and systematic pieces are of course really important, but they're, they're much less, um, it tends to be that cultural piece that, that's, that's more challenging. So, uh, um, you know, I've got to re recount a briefly a, a painful experience that sort of got me on this road uh, in the first place, which was uh, doing some consulting for a large um, uh, financial service related organization after a number of months seeing that the biggest problem was they didn't have uh, their various uh, evidence gathering people working together. And uh, I, I, I convened or I tried to convene a summit of all those people inside that organization and uh, had a really great uh, program and uh, it's essentially a retreat for two days uh, and uh, everyone loved the idea and they all signed up and then you know the day or two before I'd say 70% of them dropped out because they just got busy with their day-to-day -day work so um, so what's you know so I, I you're, you're absolutely right and, and um, you know, what we didn't have in that, at that point was a repository, but as you're saying, that doesn't mean, having one doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be used. What's the single most effective way um, you found to get various groups around Microsoft to use HITS? I think um, one of the, the things is that different teams have different incentives and individuals have different incentives and there's different things HITS can offer those different teams. And so I've talked a lot about these, these broader um, aspirations around democratizing and, and timeless knowledge, but many teams suffer, um, will have, you know, core needs that, that we can sort of try and figure out how to, to connect these things together. So one obviously is like, look, I just need a, I need a repository just for my own stuff so I can just find it myself or, you know, I can point people to it and link to it. Um, other Another need is I want sort of a way to distribute that more broadly. Um, I don't want to have to worry about access groups and things. You know, it, there's some like just, you know, sh sh you know, file share maintenance type activities that researchers, and this actually comes back to the broader research ops um, conversation, that there's, there's those needs that people have. Um, uh, another one that I think we're increasingly interested in, back to my comments on like, how do we help the researcher themselves in their short term and how do we give value to them is, uh, you know, particularly with uh, really great tactical work, you really want to be um, tracking and driving the findings from your research into the product. And that can get pretty tricky, pretty quick. How do you keep track of the things? How do you make sure your stakeholders have the right lists of issues that they can see how you're prioritizing them? 
Um, we think, you know, the, the tooling and the, the structure of hits can actually benefit that scenario um, in a way that also accrues value to these other broader um, democratization and timeless um, uh, needs and scenarios. Um, and there's a, there's a whole suite of those types of things. So part of the approach of hits is figuring out, well, what is our unique angle with this team to provide them value? And they may uh, they'll likely agree with the broader goals, um, but that may not be the incentive that first gets them um, to use the system in the first place. Um, and then there's another, another sort of incentive, which is, man, I, and this is a great thing that's sort of been evolving in Microsoft's um, uh, HR system uh, as our culture is changing more broadly in Microsoft is that we're no longer assessed just on our personal impact, but we're assessed on um, our impact that is a contribution to others and our impact uh, that builds on the work of others. And what better way to demonstrate that than to be able to show uh, other researchers who are linking and connecting to your work uh, and likewise, to show that you are linking and building off the work of others quite literally in an entirely traceable system that even has analytics um, and makes it incredibly easy to demonstrate that. So, um, so that's, like, just, that's just a sample of the, the ways we can attack it. So, so you're, you're, you're both a, a, a product manager uh, and uh, a product manager who, whose model it sounds very similar to the tenure system <laughs> in terms of depending on citation and, and such. Um, so, so you, you have this system that, you know, that is actually successfully appealing to many, uh, different types of researchers around Microsoft. Um, and I wonder if there's a tension there between getting them to participate and contribute their, their evidence to the system and the goal of democratizing research. And by that, I mean, um, you know, if, if, you know, there's a lot of people, unfortunately, uh, in our world of research who, look, I mean, you know, you've a PhD in computer science and you work really hard to get to that point. And you know that certain aspects of research are um, really best trusted to the hands of experts. On the other hand, you're trying to create a system that democratizes research. Now, if I got my, if I made the effort to put all my data in HITS, uh, and I'm a researcher who um, has worked really hard to get to where I am. Isn't there a risk of hits becoming something that reinforces the prerogative of the priesthood of researchers and can, um, in effect, um, run contrary to the goal of democratizing what's inside hits? I'll, the way I think about that, because I have had those like exact conversations with some researchers. Um, and I don't think there, I, I really think there is something there for us to take seriously in, in the sort of, in what, what it means to be a researcher and what our role is and, and when people come to us. Um, I, one, way that, one way this manifests with researchers is they can be very concerned. One concern is like, hey, I want to be the center of it and I want to, I want to get credit for my great work. Um, on that point, you know, I think, you know, we need to do a lot in the system to help give you credit and provide those feedback systems that your work is actively being used. And in that way, if the system's working well, it's really accelerating and rapidly expanding your impact. And the system can give you um, 
signals that you can demonstrate that impact and find out about impact that you didn't even know you had. Um, because, you know, the stakeholders for your work are probably far more than, than you actually realize. Um, so that's the, that's the first piece. The second piece, which I also think is, is worth thinking about is, uh, when I talk to researchers, is this concern that um, stakeholders will go in they're not disciplined or trained in how to interpret research or even the, you know, the context that this research was done in, that they'll go in and they'll do searches and they'll, they'll come to poor conclusions that will lead to bad decisions. Um, and I, you know, I think that's a, you know, worth taking seriously. My perspective on that, and you know, we'll continue to look at how this actually um, transforms uh, in the culture that we're a part of is you know, if you look at how things work today, PMs and designers make all sorts of claims, um, sometimes based on research, sometimes not. And there's, there's almost no traceability to what those, you know, to be able to follow up and look at what the evidence was. Um, uh, or in the worst case, they don't even use uh, research at all. Um, you know, it can, can happen a lot. So what I would love to see, and this is my, the broader thought I have around democratizing knowledge, is that anyone, uh, other designers, other PMs, other researchers, and even devs or other um, disciplines who may traditionally not lean in so much, suddenly are able to go in and also look at the evidence. And it's incredibly easy to go and interrogate that. And that the different sort of ways of thinking about um, whether something's true or not and what the evidence truly says, suddenly you're having a much, much richer conversation. And I think that's part of a much healthier um, ultimate culture that I, that I um, hope we can get to. And, it, and of course, it doesn't happen overnight. Uh, and, and hearing you describe the, the, the well-founded fears of what the stakeholders will do who are um, interrogating the, the, the research without really understanding the context, it makes me think of, uh, it's like stakeholders used to run, want to run focus groups with customers and we told them not to do that. Now they're going to run focus groups with our data. So. Um, Interesting how that, 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 that problem changes, and yet it's still the same in a sense. Um, I, I want to spend a minute or two uh, on a topic that you'd brought up briefly earlier, which is curation and, and how curation is, is something that leads to synthesis. Um, what, what does a system like HITS, which is ultimately you know, pulling together uh, inputs from a, from a distributed and, and very heterogeneous variety of, of inputs. Um, what kind of curation do you need? Do you need someone who's, uh, uh, do you need people first of all, and are they researchers? Are they information architects, librarians, archivists? Uh, what does it take to make this system work from a, a curation perspective? Yeah, it's, it's such a good question. I, I don't wanna pretend we have the answers because we're still experimenting with different models. So. We've done all sorts of things. We have, um, firstly, researchers do, you know, they do curation and you'll find it in examples of their works where, where their work, where people create this content that is meant to be uh, more longer lasting and more durable. So I, I think there's a clear path that researchers have a, a definite, a traditional you know, research, US researchers have a, a role to play there. Um, we've also experimented where we dedicate people and that is their job. They probably come from a research background um, and that's what they're, they're doing. We've also tried models where we have, you know, say some talented postdocs who work on a part-time basis to partner with researchers um, in order to help with some of that um, curation. 
Um, one of the real challenges is that if the researcher is doing it for themselves, it can be hard to find the time to do the higher level curation when you're so pulled into these, um, uh, you know, tactical matters, um, making real impact on products that are right in front of you. Um, and so that's part of what we're trying to do is figure out more how we can build this into the natural workflow um, so that, you know, how can we make it possible that you're, you're writing up some study results in a fairly tactical manner, but make it easy for you to contribute in a lightweight fashion, maybe in the context of that, that report you're writing up to contribute um, to the broader community. Um, and we're still at the beginning of that journey. Well, and I, I think it's a journey that's going to take years because ultimately whoever's working on these types of projects, uh, you know, which are now starting to, to, to pop up in a lot of places. I'm happy to see. It's like you're, you're basically kind of building a, an organizational brain, like an enterprise brain, uh, not Absolutely. just kind of spit out uh, insights uh, in a very kind of, uh, you know, ad hoc, uh, we need answers now, but the, the kind of timeless uh, uh, patterns that hopefully will emerge, uh, you know, that is, this is heavy lifting that people like you are doing. And I really appreciate your sharing what you're doing with HITS uh, with us today. Um, is there anything you wish I would have asked you about HITS before we wrap it up? Yeah, so I think I could, I could just speak a little briefly about how our solution works and, and how we approach the problem. And so the, the core of where we started really was researchers are already doing traditional research reporting in various ways at, at Microsoft, whether it's lightweight in an email, a set of bullets, or it's a, a presentation, or it's something more formal or more documented. And what we really did is just acknowledge or observe the fact that there's really this latent structure in those documents. Um, that's that's there for the taking. There are these insights there. You could go through with a highlighter and say, oh, that's an insight and that's an insight. And actually early on, that's what um, one of the uh, my manager originally on the team was doing is like pulling those out and putting them in a spreadsheet to like actually see what we were learning and what we were discovering. Um, and what, um, so that's kind of what we've done is made a system where we can uh, actually capture the insights that are already in the research reports that we're creating today. Um, by embracing a structured authoring um, sort of approach. Um, and what that allows us to do is it makes those insights searchable, findable, linkable. Um, but the real devil there that we've been, um, you know, sort of learnt uh, the hard way is how do you make sure that those insights aren't uh, decontextualized and pulled out inappropriately out of that content? And so there's a real art in how we design the interface to make those individual pieces findable but keeping them in that uh, context. Um, and then the second part we've already spoken to, spoken about is developing a system and a structure for curation uh, and a culture on top of that. And so if I was just to give you an example or a story of how this works and hits today, um, I, I was a research manager myself for a long time. Um, and I, um, I got a, an email sort of got forwarded to me from a, a very senior um, you know, vice president who was, had noticed that Spotify had moved away from the, the hamburger interaction pattern. And the question was, hey, do we have internal research and on this that will sort of be a light on why they might have done this? And that arrived to me as a research manager. And my, I think many research managers out there may be able to relate to this. My heart kind of sank because I knew that this had come up in a lot of our research, but... Um, I, we never did a study on this per se that I could just send over, of course, because it's a it's type of epiphenomena that occurs across many different products. 
And one of the options I had available to me was to email all of my reports and say, hey, what do you know about this? And they could uh, email my team, that is, and, and they could sort of respond to me and, and kind of what they recollect. They wouldn't really be able to point at, at, at specifics. Um, but we had hits at that time, just in an early version. I was able to go and search for hamburger and I immediately got back all of these individual um, insights from within studies. And just at a glance, I could see a lot of the interaction, uh, usability and engagement challenges that Hamburger was having. So that, that gave me a huge leg up. But even better, uh, one of the researchers had, uh, because we had embraced this culture of curation, they had actually authored uh, an insight about the trade-offs um, of engagement with Hamburger menus. And it cited external references. There's a lot of um, great industry um, A-B tests and such. Um, but it could also point to the individual insights from within um, these studies. Um, and I was able to, within you know, 30 seconds, find that, link it, and send it back, which was hugely gratifying. And the thing that makes it really powerful is that even today, when I go back and look at that insight, it's, it's still up to date without anyone even doing curation. Because individuals putting in new work into hits uh, where they're describing some phenomenon with a hamburger, HITS helps them find that high-level insight. It helps them cite it. And in doing so, we create these backlinks and we're actually building this ongoing living uh, body of evidence that this is still an issue uh, in various products. Um, now, that's a, you know, hamburger is somewhat, uh, it's not super, um, uh, uh, becoming slightly dated example, but I think it illustrates uh, pretty well the system in action. Yeah, and I, I appreciate that because I like to, as a listener probably would know, talk at um, a bit of a hand-wavy level when it comes to this. So I, I'm really glad you brought it back down to the level of what the system actually does for you. That's a great example. Um, Matt, it, it's been a pleasure to, to, to have you join us today. Is there um, a place that uh, you, you think um, it would be good for people to, uh, to check to learn more? Would it be the Medium article or... or uh, yeah, I would. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for asking. Well, firstly, I wanted to say how incredibly uh, grateful I am to be able to kind of spread and talk about these these topics um, and, you know, how lucky I feel to work on such an interesting challenge. Um, I'd encourage people to check out the Timeless Research uh, article on Medium. It's part of a broader uh, set of articles on research ops and research practice that we've been sharing from across Microsoft. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff there, and um, you can expect at some point in the near future um, other content related to hits um, being posted there. So I'd encourage you to go there, follow that, um, and uh, there's a lot of good stuff. And join the conversation. I would love to see people commenting and discussing it up there as well so we can sort of learn as a community. Yeah, the, the, maybe the, the fastest way to find it, Medium would be to search the, the author's name. That's Joe Munko, M-U-N-K-O. And it's called Skip User Research Unless You're Doing It Right. Seriously. Uh, Matt Dagnan, thank you again. Uh, Matt is the uh, product manager for the uh, HIT system, the Human Insight System at Microsoft. Uh, I wish we had more time. Uh, this is, it's great to hear that you guys are doing this work. And I appreciate you sharing it with us today. <laughs> Thanks thank again. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.